Welcome to another episode of the Water Women Podcast, the podcast all things ocean. I'm your host, Jill. Hey, pals. Before we jump into today's episode, I just wanted to let everyone know that we launched our Stay Salty merch. Water Women finally has official merch that you can wear, and I'm so excited about this launch. I'm partnering with one of my really good friends, Mackenzie, and all the sweaters and shirts are handmade by her and I. We're in pre-order right now, so if you're interested in rocking some, some Stay Salty sweaters, then check out our website at waterwomen.ca slash shop. Can't wait for you guys to check them out, and I hope you love them as much as I do. Now let's dive in with Vanessa. <laughs> Welcome to the Water Women Podcast. I am, as I always say, so excited to have you on. But like I was just telling you, I, I'm going to out myself again as just like your biggest fan. Like I first heard about you and your work when we, or when I was working on my TED Talk and was doing the research and little did I know that would be my last interaction with you. And I've cited so many of your papers and read so much of your work now with my work. So like having you on is really like, a dream for me. So I'd love for you to introduce yourself with your full name and your pronouns here. Oh, well, thank you, Jill, so much for having me. This is my privilege and an honor to be speaking to you. I love enthusiastic people. So my name is Dr. Vanessa Perotta, and I am a wildlife scientist, obviously a marine scientist, but I work across both the marine and the terrestrial world at the moment, which is great because it's all about diversifying. But my main work is in the ocean. And I do a lot of work on humpback whales, specifically the East Australian humpback whale population, because, well, each year I'm very lucky to have thousands of them come past my backyard. And they're an, a great species to work on because there's lots of them. And we can use them as a model species to look at how we can ask questions around acquiring information from whales from this species to then transfer to other species more vulnerable or in need of our help. So my work is focused on the use of innovative technologies for conservation, as well as a lot of citizen science. And it's all focused around marine life, just like whales. And as I said before, the humpback whale. Love it. So for the listeners, to sum it up, Vanessa is who I want to be when I grow up. It's <laughs> You're my, like, my career day. I'm just going to bring a picture of her and be like, this is it. This is my, my goal. <laughs> I, I love it. Well, the thing is you're passionate. So I know I love being passionate. So that's where we, we're, we're perfect. Good <laughs> spirits already. I love it. So when you were younger, like when did you decide this is what you wanted to pursue? Did you always know or was it something you kind of learned later in life? Well, I always knew that I wanted to do something in the marine environment. So I, I, for your listeners that don't know, I grew up on a farm outside of our capital city here in Australia, which is Canberra, and that's known as the bush capital. So there was no ocean, no whales at all. But one of the things that inspired me was the movie Free Willy. So some of your listeners might be too young to know what Free Willy is. I love it. <laughs> but it's where, you know, the story where the young boy he's has hard times and then he does some graffiti at a marine park and then fortunately he gets to work with this killer whale and he's 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 gone through this massive journey and it's seeing him work with Keiko or Free Willy at the time his most common name um, really inspired me so I always wanted to be a dolphin trainer so that was my journey even from a young age I think in year two my school teacher would tell my 
mum that I was drawing dolphins. It's just was always something I wanted to do. And I was very fortunate enough to then go on to being in uni, went to university, worked at a zoo. Then I became a dolphin trainer. So I actually did become a dolphin trainer. And then I, I worked out that, oh, this is good, but it's not everything I'd hoped it to be. So I'm going to try and see what else I can do. And that's where my career just went on to a, you know, into the marine world more academically. I love that. I feel like every young girl who starts out thinking about marine science is like dolphin trainer. That's it. (laughs) But I think you're the first one I've had on that's like, yeah, I actually did that. I actually became a dolphin trainer. And I love it. I'm so grateful and lucky. And I was working with sea lions as well. And in addition to that, I was working with the a lot of marine turtles so sea turtles so a lot of the work that I was doing was conservation focused so looking at rehabilitating rescued animals there was fur seals that came in that were not well animals that needed to be attended to on beach stranded animals you name it so it's not just what people see as presenting shows or providing education to people it's a whole host of other things as a facility that you can do and that's why I just learned so many things and had so many hands-on experiences in that role, which I forever am grateful for today. The hands-on experiences are like life-changing. Like, I feel like they're what really like sells you on it. Like you're like, oh, you can read about it. You can watch as many videos as you want. But when you actually get out there and get to like firsthand experience something, it's like, oh, this is it. It's so true. And just being, I think the thing is, and I think you really appreciate this too, Jill, is when you're near a whale, and you're in there and you're in the environment with them you can hear them breathing like that big yep. their, their breathing is powerful but even working with dolphins you just you look at their eye you, you see that they're thinking they're very aware of their environment they're you know in different environments it's really a, are amazing animals and so there's only this natural urge that we want to learn more and so thankfully in my role now I'm able to learn a lot more and then share that knowledge with the world which is exciting I love that. So what is your work that you're doing right now? What are you looking at when you're looking at these whales? What are you studying? Well, there's a variety of things that I'm undertaking, but I guess the thing is the more general things, uh, it's looking at whale movements, a whale ecology off the East Australian coast, which is a great thing because we need to know when and where these animals occur. But as well as that, last year in particular off the South coast of Australia, there was a massive feeding event, a first one ever in Australia on a mass scale and it was a super group feeding event which is the second time only in the southern hemisphere this has ever been observed the first time was it was observed off South Africa and then off um, New South Wales which is down south of Sydney for your listeners so geographical location so if you're doing your master's research uh, or your honors up in Queensland you keep going south past Sydney and south a little bit more and then you've got New South Wales south coast and some of the work there that we've seen of these whales feeding in big groups so 20 or more humpback whales in one spot just feeding feeding really was providing information that these whales are not only migrating through Australian waters primarily to breed yeah they're using Australian waters as this massive feeding ground, or at least in that area at that time, the, the, the food was good. And so the animals stuck around and they ate. And so we typically see feeding along the southward migration every year. But on this case, it was massive. And so a lot of my work has been focused on that, which is very exciting. That is so cool. I didn't even hear. That's amazing. Like a huge feeding event like that is so yeah. cool. It's so cool. It's only ever happened once. And in addition to that, Jill, 
we saw bubble net feeding for the first time in Australian waters. And so this is where humpback whales will deliberately blow bubbles from their nostrils. And, you know, you're in the Northern Hemisphere, you would be way more aware of bubble net feeding than what we are down here. Yeah, it's so cool. It's so, like, I've never seen it. I've seen, like, portions of it, but never a full, like, full circle of them coming up together. Like, I've only seen the videos, but it's so weird to me. I've talked with my friends down there. Like when I was down in Australia a couple summers ago, my first time out on a boat. So where I live, like I'm in the Bay of Fundy, I get to see the feeding behaviors. Like I get to see some really cool stuff with the whales, but I also don't get to see them perform any other behaviors. Like it's just eating. Like they're there to eat. They don't care about too much else. And when I was down in on the Gold Coast for the first time, we went out uh, one day whale watching and uh, the humpback breached like 17 times. (laughs) And my wow. like, oh man, like only 17 times. And I was like, only? What do you mean only? I haven't seen 17 breaches in my entire life. What do you mean only? So it's so funny that they have such different behaviors where they are. And now to know that they are feeding in that area is so cool. And I suppose that's funny because, um, you know, you, you're seeing feeding all the time and we're <laughs> seeing all these acrobatic behaviors all the time. And <laughs> it's such a contrast, really. We get excited about different things, although... Anytime I see a whale jump out of the water, it is so impressive. And even if you've seen it a million times, you kind of are taken aback. And it's never just, gets wow. Never gets it. Even just like seeing a whale never gets old. Like That's for right. a while I was working on a whale watching boat and I'd still like be like, oh my God, guys, look, a whale, a whale. And they're like, <laughs> don't, you, don't you do this every day? And I'm like, yeah, but I just love them. Okay. Like they're amazing. How come <laughs> you're so not true. excited? I love it. So how are you studying whales? Like you mentioned citizen science and citizen science is the basis of my thesis right now. So I love talking citizen science. So tell us a little bit about how you're using citizen science to study. Well, fortunately for us in New South Wales, so New South Wales being a state for your, again, geographical listeners, your global audience, um, where Sydney is located. One of the cool things is in, when I first studied my master's way back many, many years ago, the group I was working with were citizen scientists and so they were doing a research project that was it was sort of formal but it wasn't really formal and I was working directly alongside the citizen scientists collecting observation data of the whales going past counting how many there are they were very strict in their routine so once a whale spotted you follow it to this point and then you disregard it and then you start fresh so you don't double count whales so that was really important so it was a very systematic method of approach for how you did all of that and I guess the thing is I saw the value in these people counting this information and I was like this is a story to be told so a lot of the time that I was in 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 addition to doing my whale entanglement research because I was looking at ways to prevent whale entanglement fishing gear I was working alongside the citizen scientists to try and acquire this information and then I went into my PhD and I was still working alongside the group to collect this information and it came out to be a really great story because over time we did some modeling with the data. So the observation days, the people observing and the amount of animals seen. And we all looked at that and took everything into account and then compared that with more systematic based surveys, which occurs in Queensland waters, which um, Node and et al. will be primarily leading those right at the moment, which is great. And so we're able to show that we were, through citizen science, able to see an increase in this population over time, taking into account observer effort and and 
change, you know, weather condition days, observability, that kind of thing. It's all taken into account. And then compare that to systematic surveys up north where they were had scientists collecting the information which showed an increase in the population over time, so around 11% each year, we are also able to mirror that. So we were saying that the use of citizen science is great because there's over 20 years worth of data that we've collected, which is phenomenal, a huge long-term study. But we're also making sure that, yes, it is citizen science collecting the data, so we need to make sure that the how this information is interpreted is interpreted accurately, but also reflective that this is not undertaken by scientists, but in a way that is, well, if, if you funded a 20-year project, that would require a huge amount of funds yeah. for a scientist, as you can imagine, although we're, we're pretty keen to work for almost nothing. Um, but we've got to stop doing that. We've got to make sure that we get acknowledged for our work because otherwise it'd be working for free forever. So it was really a good opportunity to make sure that we had an, a story told in an appropriately scientific manner. But also what we were showing was that there was an increase in the population. And this 20-year data set of citizen science is a way of enabling us to reflect on what these people have done which is great and one particular researcher down there Wayne Reynolds has been there since day one and and Sue uh, Sue Rennie Wright another great collaborator had been down there since day one where they were watching whales in a car park and then a dedicated deck was built for them so a whale platform so that was that was great and so that yeah that's that's a lot of the work that I've continued and still to this day continue to do because it's so in, it's it's so positive sharing people's passion yeah. with whales and also making it more formalized, which is a great thing. I love citizen science and like seeing how it's grown over the past little while is so cool. And to know that it's like a data collection technique is so amazing. Like you can just anyone and you can help science and put forward that, which is so cool. Yeah, that's right. And look, I know coming from the science background, the data won't always be perfect. That's that's citizen science. You've got to make sure that you're aware of how the information is collected, know that there are limitations, but in every study that you do, there are going to be limitations. So this is just ways of engaging people, acquiring data to the the, the limit that you can and interpreting, interpreting that quite cautiously, but also telling a good story. Yeah. So one of my favorite pieces of your work has to do with whale snot. So I would (laughs) love to talk about some whale snot here for a second. Okay. So just to start out, why are you looking at whale snot? And like, who the heck came up with this idea? Like who thought like, yes, a whale snot is what we want to be looking at. So like, what's the story with whale snot here? Great question. So whale snot is the lung bacteria or lung microbiota from a whale's lungs. And this is a biological technique that arose through many attempts trying to acquire this, acquire this information from whales in a non-invasive way. So if we go really, really back, people used to think that by killing whales, this was a great way of acquiring data from them and health information, but the animals die as a result. Fortunately, we do not need to do that anymore to learn more about them. And there are ways in which we can do this without having to hurt them. So that's a positive. Now, many years ago, there was the use of poles to simply hold over a whale. So people would use a a pole and they would place a petri dish or some sort of collection device over that, over the whale's blowhole, and that this would require being in a boat and being quite close to a whale. And this still, people still do this as well as 
um, putting a tag on a whale. People need to get close to whales to attach a tag, so a satellite tag. That's fine. In that case, that all needs to happen. There is obviously the concern that if you're very close to an animal, it might stress the animal out. It can be dangerous for you and the animal as well. So there are all those considerations. So this is why it's obviously done by people who know what they're doing, trained, experienced people. Yeah, we really jumped from like citizen science to this. I should (laughs) preface this with like, this is not just random citizens collecting whale snot. This is trained. No. And the other thing is you need animal ethics and scientific licenses to be able to conduct what I'm talking about. So you don't just decide that you want to do this and it happens overnight. (laughs) And so one of the other things is I went to the Marine Mammal Conference in San Francisco. So there was before that, there was New Zealand 2013, I think, and then San Francisco 15. And there, there was a whole room of people talking about drones and doing things with drones. And at that time, I don't believe there was a formalised collection with drones with snot because there was a great paper by Hunt et al. in 2010 that used a remote control helicopter. So there's kind of like this, like a... Like a, like a toy helicopter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's a it's quite an advanced toy. Yeah, yeah. I think like, it runs on like big petrol. Big boy. Yeah, yeah. So you wouldn't let your five-year-old play with it. And so they that was actually the start of the first kind of drone in my opinion, um, doing this, which was really cool. So that was really great. But then since then, and since going to the Marine Mammal Conference, the use of drones was being used to survey animals, look at photogrammetry to see how big animals are. And then during that time, I was working with drone engineer and pilot, Alastair Smith from Heligai Scientific here in Australia. And Alastair's really, he's an international pilot. He's amazing at what he does. He's an engineer and I was working collaboratively with him talking about how it would be great to collect biological samples from whales to collect information on their health. And so the use of microbiota or the collection of microbiota was an idea that came naturally when we were on a boat to out offshore looking at these animals for photogrammetry purposes, but the collection of biological samples seemed that it was a natural progression because the animals were producing a lot of this and for photogrammetry, photogrammetry, where you take a measurement of the whale, they stay really still at the surface and whales don't often do that. So <laughs> it was a natural progression to, okay, what's a really good, good way we can collect a lot of data from an animal, this is here. And, and then going into reading more in the scientific literature, delved into it a lot more and there was a great also a great team meeting I believe like a breakout session at the San Francisco conference where we had pathologists there who were talking about lung microbiome and talking about how there's actually information there that we can collect and so taking all those pieces of the puzzle I was able to like formally create something with my drone engineer to specifically create a drone to do just that Now, at the same time, there were other people who had more funds than we did, which was lucky for them, that were adapting this idea as well. And they were flying non-waterproof drones over whales to collect similar samples. Now, if we had a drone fall in the water that was an off-the-shelf drone, that's $10,000 at that stage, Australian dollars at that stage, and I just didn't have the budget, budget to do so. So this is why we created our own unique drone as a result of this wanted this desire to learn more about the internal health in a new method in a way that wouldn't hurt the animal that is so cool like that like 
We've actually had one of my really good friends, Gina, who is getting another shout out on this podcast. She's researching right whales, North Atlantic right whales up here. Oh, it's important. Isn't she important? She's the best. Gina, huge shout out here. Um, but she was talking about drones on the podcast about how she uses them to like the, take the photos and everything. Yeah. The, the natural progression of using that to actually collect like physical data from the whale mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. so cool. So like, does it have like a Petri dish on the top and like how there's, I feel like there's a lot of logistics that you had to work out with this. Like, how does it open? How do you close the Petri dish or is it just open the whole time? Like how, what were the logistics and how did you figure out those? Well, it does have a Petri dish and we didn't know to, whether we should put the Petri dish on top or below. Ah. So that was one thing. And we tested that and we found that by putting it below the drone, the, the propellers would push the sample away. So we ah. don't want that. Yeah. So then we had the drone on the Petri dish on top of the drone going out to the whale to collect the sample. And that was good. But actually the sample would be contaminated because the Petri dish is open. Mm. So air particles, seawater particles, you name it. So then Alistair was really clever and he created this flip lib mechanism, which we've published on this. So we're the first to create this, which is great. So this is all cemented in scientific literature. So we were able to have a, an, an, the drone fly out to the animal. The Petri dish opens when it's told to, opens it for a, a, only a couple of seconds when it's targeting the sample we want, collects the sample, shuts the lid, comes back to us and the Petri dish is never opened until back in the laboratory. That is so cool and incredibly smart love that collaboration collaboration that's why it's good to collaborate with amazing minds and that's what I love about science so you mentioned there that you were said it stays like you don't open it until you see the sample you want is there a specific like I know you're looking for like the whale's blow but is there a specific Mm -hmm. blow that you're looking for or is it kind of like non-discriminatory between like oh this whale's coming up for the first time versus a whale that's coming up for its last time before its terminal dive well, we were like that, being very picky, but it then became a chance that, well, that whale's not going to take a breath and maybe the other one takes a breath. So it's opportunistic and we take video to record which whale we collect a sample from. So if we've got, we might have three samples from the same whale and we make sure that we note that or we then target another animal. And with regards to the breath or the blow, yeah, some whales do really good juicy breaths and some <laughs> whales don't. Some whales will do like a little... <laughs> it's just hardly any sample <laughs> so I love that but um yeah you really there you really want a whale that really comes up and whoa I've been underneath for a long time let me take some air and then yeah you collect the sample and we're specifically looking for bacteria but in a world first we've collected viruses via this method which is cool. published as well in the scientific literature and and a lot of people talk about world first but this is legitimately a world first and so very very cautious with the media how they turn things into world first but for this this is all completely genuinely genuinely world first content that is so incredible and that must be so exciting to know that you're just kind of like breaking down doors here and learning some really cool new stuff so you mentioned bacteria and viruses like there's like it's the microbe from the inside of their lungs Mm-hmm. what like what do you find in there and like how do you get it from the petri dish to learn about it like I'm so fascinated by this I have watched like I love this I am so excited like sorry listeners this podcast actually isn't for you guys this is me <laughs> this is for me this one's for me so like what are you gathering from this well what we at the start when we first started we wanted to know can we actually collect lung bacteria from whales and that was the first question so we would 
I collect the samples. We would we'd actually use a variety of lab techniques. And this is all again published in the scientific literature. So what we would do is we'd simply swab the sample and then we would then do, we'd store it on ice or in minus 80 refrigerator until we're ready to process, go extract the DNA. So we'd do a DNA extraction and then we'd run a PCR, which as you'd know from COVID, people are very much aware of PCR, which means that you take a small amount of sample from, in this case, the DNA or the bacterial DNA. And then you would create more and more copies of that. So you amplify it. And so once we did that, we'd then send the samples away to a special area, which then become in the process of something known as the next generation sequencing. So next generation sequencing is a high tech method of essentially working out lists and the types of bacteria you have, or in this case for bacteria, information on the types of different species of bacteria that we have. And it's just, it provides a huge amount of data now, it was quite expensive at the time when we did it. And I can imagine that now prices would come down as the technology gets better and better. Yeah. But the information that we're acquiring is A, providing us with information on the types of bacteria living in whale lungs because we were trying to work out, well, what can we collect from free-swimming, relatively healthy whales? So that's number one. B, how does this type of bacteria differ from different whales? C, does this, is there any overlap in the type of microbial communities that we see in these whales versus other whale populations around the world? And we did find an overlap in some of them, which is good. And see, are we able to in, use this information to then compare with sick whales or dead whales or stranded whales or whales in poor health? And how can we compare the types of bacterial communities in their lungs? So it's very specific. So listeners, this is very specific research that is trying to show that you can use new technologies to collect information from a whale without having to hurt them. Now, obviously collecting blood from a whale would be the gold standard yeah. in learning more about their health at a time, but a whale simply won't show its pectoral flip or its fluke for you to collect blood. So this is us being very clever and, <laughs> and going around different ways to do just that really hard when your species your study species won't cooperate and is also like the size of a school bus you know it makes it <laughs> difficult. it's so true it's it's like come on whale just sit there and present your flipper <laughs> come on just flip it over just give me one give me just a second <laughs> this is what you mean and being a humpback whale well as you can see behind me i've got a humpback whale <laughs> picture in my virtual background their their pictorial flippers or their arms are the biggest of any whale so they're long but it is actually the fluke where we take blood from and we've done a lot of that with dolphins and if you've ever seen a dolphin tail seeing the vein the venous system and the their flukes is really cool yeah i bet that would be so cool so like do you think we'll ever get to the place where we have a way to like minimally invasively take blood from whales or do you think that's going to remain a mystery forever or could this be my potential phd when i work with you later on <laughs> It could be, although I would, I would say the ethics involved for that. We basically want to use a needle and inject that into a whale when it's swimming and we're on a boat and I'm sure the oh people would go, ah, no way. Won't tell them. It's fine. I'll just come up with some like revolutionary like outcome and they'll be like, oh, well, we like, we have to forgive it now, you know, like ask for forgiveness, not permission. That does not bode well in science, but you know. <laughs> no. And especially for your listeners that don't know, the work that we do in the science world has to be properly uh, have ethics and scientific licenses. Otherwise you won't be able to publish it. Yeah. Otherwise. Because the science, 
yeah that's well the scientific journals won't they need to see evidence that you have acquired this information in an appropriate manner yeah absolutely it's crazy how like serious the ethics can be sometimes like I mean it makes sense but like yep humpback whales even if you're just like observing off a boat it's like what are the ethics behind this like is a whale watching boat too invasive versus like not a whale watching boat and a personal craft it's so cool kind of like the hoops you have to jump through very absolutely yeah and even with drone usage people can go and fly a drone off here and do it uh, stay at least 100 meters above a whale and that they can just do it whereas if we're doing it for science we need to make sure that we have appropriate everything in plan in place to make sure well at least for our drone we are flying within a couple of meters of a whale so that's totally fine but it's in place there but you can see how you know the science world you go through massive hoops as you said to get these information and then people can just go up and do them and collect information and ignorance is almost bliss in a way but we we know better as scientists and researchers of how to correctly approach animals and also be respectful of them yes absolutely we you want to right like I don't want whales to be afraid of me I want to love them I just I want the best for them and you are no doubt providing a huge level of service for whales that they, just, they don't know yet through your communication and through your efforts and that's what whales need and that's great and so and I'm sure there are people in different it's it's true it's and there, we need different species, need different people to be advocates for them. And so generally having a discussion, the people listening to this t- today have an interest in the marine environment, whether it be whales or they've just stumbled across this, this is a great opportunity for everyone to kind of reflect and go, wow, you know, we're talking about an animal the size of a bus. It lives and breathes, it lives, it breathes the same air we do. And it helps regulate the ocean for the food that we eat. I speak about that in my TED, TED talk. So all of these things are in it, it's very much a connected environment but people like you Jill is helping facilitate that information to the world which is great I love it scientific communication is just so important and so fun like it I feel like scientific communication has kind of taken a turn in recent years especially with like social media and whatnot of like going from okay here's this paper I am presenting in a very boring hard to understand way to like finding ways to make it fun and like make people actually care about it and I love that and scientific communication is something that you're very passionate about which is also what I love like why do you love it so much well I I love it because it's a way of making information accessible and it's a way of telling people an informed an informed piece of information so for example a lot of the work that we do is generating science and storytelling but it's providing people with factual evidence of things which is really good and that's people want to know about it and also people are really supportive around that which is great and so I will will want to work with people like that who really want to do similar things share great knowledge share a good story and lift people's spirits while learning about something they would not have necessarily thought about so Mm -hmm. science communication is very much an important thing as my role as a scientist and a way of me generally like yourself sharing your passion with people it's so fun especially when you're talking about something that you're passionate about like for us we've talked we're obviously whale girls I have like my friends call me whale girl like literally that's (laughs) their joke and there's times when I like hear people say something about a whale and I'm just like like, that's not correct but like not in a way I'm just like oh like we were on a whale watching tour one day and one little girl was like 
I bet whales eat sharks and I was like oh what do you think whales eat like did you know that certain whales like don't have teeth and like it's so fun to share that and like I've had people like I was talking about a snail one day and some guy was like man did you know like this about snails and I was like no because I don't care about snails but that is so cool and now I do care about them and like meeting someone who's as infectious about it as us is just like so fun like it makes it it is it is and that's what's so great because you need people to be doing this because there is a lot of people doing different things in the environment but I guess we're the storytellers for that and it's acting in service so you I would say that a lot of work I do and very much yourself would be acting as a service providing people with knowledge and providing insights and that's so good and that's really positive it's so cool to see so like what are your favorite forms of like scientific communication and your favorite things that you've done well I love podcasts they're fun (laughs) Um, my TEDx talk was also a great opportunity to reach a big platform. Yeah. I've been fortunate enough to travel to the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization in Rome, Italy, which was great. I was a marine mammal expert in a field in a room with marine mammal experts, and I actually spoke about science communication and and con- talking about how we should convey some of the messages around fisheries and bycatch and marine mammal entanglement in bycatch in fisheries rather. And so my work there was really instrumental because that was a good platform for me to reach a whole different audience by disseminating this big information to a lot of different audiences. So that's another platform. Um, Obviously, social media like Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, those kind of options are there. However, I I must, must point out that although these media platforms are great, it is sometimes overwhelming for people when they go on social media, sometimes it can be unhealthy at times. You need a bit of a mental health break because often some of the things that you see on there might be well, people trying to shout things at you or um, you see things and you're just like, wow, how does this happen? And it's always taken with a grain of salt. Yeah. So I use these platforms to my ability and also to as a way of facilitating my messages and, and without being are very much um, sort of like a dictator. So I want to provide neutral messaging around my work in a positive way. I love that. I love sharing it and like just getting the information out there and especially like social media, definitely a double-edged sword where you're like sometimes not allowed to ask stupid questions because there's no such thing as a stupid question. But like, if there's something that you don't know, that's totally fine. And you should be able to comment on like one of your posts be like, hey, how does a whale eat? And people shouldn't be like, there shouldn't be any of this like why don't you know that or like come on that's common like definitely a double-edged sword there and having to be like neutral in what you post and not kind of like a I hate the term like preachy because it's like (laughs) you don't want to be that but also sometimes it's like hey like I'm an expert in this field maybe I know what I'm talking about and that goes for a lot of different things yeah, well, also, though, I know I've got a PhD and people always say, you, you, you've got a PhD, but I always am first to say I don't actually know everything about certain things. And that's really important as a scientist to acknowledge that, that we may have, yes, we've got specialised training and you spend a lot of years dedicating your life to something and you continue to do so and you acquire a lot of transferable skills. But at the end of the day, you still don't know everything, but what you can provide is information that people can go, oh, yeah, well, that's really interesting or... And if someone wants to challenge that, then that's that's up to them. It's, it's their problem. That's that's what you've also got to take with social media. The the people going, ah, oh, well, yeah, that's right. Shouldn't they know that? Oh gosh, 
you know, of course whales eat fish, that kind of yeah, thing. Of course. Like, okay. <laughs> not everyone knows that. Not everyone hangs right. out. Like, come on. That's right. That's right. And that's where social media is great for informing people who wouldn't really care about a whale, but we're making them care because, yeah. well, they're important to us all. Yeah, exactly. They're really vital ecosystem engineers. They're really like the mm. most important. Like when I tell people, I'm like, you should care about whales because my favorite fact is the like, you wouldn't be breathing without whale poop. And people are like, that's just not true. And I'm like, no, no, it is. It is. I love that. I love it. That's right. Moving huge amounts of nutrients from one part of the area to another, eating at different levels, pooing high, feeding low, and vice versa. <laughs> moving things all around, Move, moving shit all around. You know, that's what they do. They got to. That's right. That's right. That's right. And, you know, humans, we do the same thing because we acquire our food from one area and then it, we may put it else uh, somewhere else via <laughs> another area, don't we all? We've all got bathrooms at home, that kind of thing. So thinking biologically, we are mammals just like them. It happens. It happens. I love it. One thing I found is like when I was growing up, marine mammals was always thought of as like a young girl thing. Like it was, if you liked dolphins, it was very like feminine and, you know, like that was the thing for little girls to like. But then as I got into the field, I've actually found it's very like, male dominated and a lot of the papers I'm reading from like it's definitely getting better but a lot of the papers I'm reading from like earlier years I'm like these are there's a lot of guys here like where are the girls so what's your advice for a woman who wants to be in this field but it's like a male dominant field like do you ever struggle with like imposter syndrome or like just like oh man like what's going on here kind of stuff stuff that's a very good question because Yes, I was one of those girls who was like, I want to be a dolphin trainer. And as I said, I, I did that. And it was, it seemed like it was a very female type thing to do. And then, yes, getting into the marine world and going to a marine mammal conference, there are a lot of men there. But I guess that my advice would be first of all, I'm very grateful for my opportunity to follow my passion and to love what I do. That is really one thing. So if you're studying marine science right now, you are very, very lucky because you have the opportunity to be doing something that you love and also the opportunity to be spending time on something that you love. I mean, there's very few times in life that where you'll be able to do just that. The other thing is the male-dominated industry, there is probably, an, and back in the day, I say back in the day, but when I looked at old school whale entanglement literature yeah it was a lot of gentlemen doing that work that back then it may have been a result of well there was more that divide women say yeah. uh, primary caregivers the homemakers that type of thing but now we are seeing so many more female researchers which it's just great because people are able to juggle families and do amazing things and I'm doing that right now I'm literally juggling having a family and doing my career which is great so I guess the thing is I really wanted to go into this and show young girls that you can achieve your dreams and working around things in a positive way, but also that you can continue doing what you love. Now, there are, there are different directions that your career might take, but it's all exciting and it's generally in the name of what you want to do. So for my work, it's very much wildlife conservation. Yeah. And I continue to do that today. Um, having finished my PhD, it's definitely taught me so many exciting things and definitely given me a huge wide range of skill sets to allow me to continue to do amazing things for the ocean and to continue to, to show young women and to show women generally and be a mentor to other women in science that we do have a place here and it's gonna, it is much more equal. And in fact, my supervisor 
Professor Rob Harcourt, he's great because, well, a lot of the gentlemen I would work around as my supervisors and I had a very great influential female supervisor for my PhD as well. But it was so great to see people on the top level supporting their students to do amazing things. And so my laboratory was very much equal to boys and girls and we all worked together and it was not seen as a, a sexist thing at all. Yeah, I feel like we're kind of getting to the age of like, it's not so much of a divide, but it's still so amazing to have people to look up to in the field when you're like going through, because sometimes it can be really hard. And if you're looking at like the people you have to look up to and there's no one that looks like you, acts like you, talks like you, it's kind mm. of like, is there a spot for me? And I love that you brought up balancing families because I feel like women in STEM and women in conservation specifically get this bad rap of being like, I'm a, like, I'm a strong independent woman. I don't need anyone, which like, sure. But also like you can balance having a family and other wants and needs with your work. And I love that. I love that you brought that to light. Well, it's very tricky. Like, I'm not going to lie. It's not easy, but this is me being refreshingly honest, but it is exciting to share the stuff that you're learning about with your little one and and that's a great opportunity and also having a family provides you with a level that you need to be mature about that because you're looking after someone else but it also does show you that there are other people like you in your situation and I'm working alongside many other females doing similar things and feeling incredibly supported by my peers and will continue to do so and that's what's really refreshing and I guess also the thing other thing I want to bring up is being from a culturally diverse background. So I've in Australia, I was born here, but my family's from Europe. So my father's Maltese and my mum's Italian. And so th that's also a, you know, if you ask my mum my or my dad, well, my mum's passed, unfortunately, but she, one of the things I said, I wanted to be a marine biologist. And she was, she, one of the things she said to me is, oh, there's not much money in marine biology. And I remember saying, <laughs> going, yes, that's true. But because it was such a bizarre thing to do and yep. it was such a bizarre thing for me and my family and it, it, being an academic was completely different to everyone we knew and, and things that my whole family upbringing. So I guess the other thing is when I was grew up on a farm, I didn't even know that there was a tide, two tides a day, a high and a low tide, those kind of things. And now doing what I do, you know, rep representing a culturally diverse background, woman in STEM, continuing to follow my passion. This is something that I hope your listeners can really take away from this, whether you think that your whole family needs to be academics to do science, or if you need to be good on the sea to be able to do whale research. I mean, I, I get seasick. I take seasick tablets every time I go out on the ocean. I mission. love it. It's still possible. See, guys, like you can do it. You can really? do anything. I love that no I love it I do think I like the shift that's happening with people sharing like the these are the struggles I went through this it's fine to struggle it's fine to not be like everyone else it's fine to not feel like you have to be everything like you it's really refreshing the age we're going into almost of everyone being honest about things and no having no expectations in a way of like you don't have to meet this exact criteria to do this kind of stuff Exactly. And it's, it's good. We need people from different backgrounds to come into this, provide a different perspective and to show people younger, the younger generation that working in science, technology, engineering, and maths can look different. And we're all working collaboratively together to learn about things and to help the world be a better place. Absolutely. I feel like that is a fantastic ending note right there. 
that's just like end of sentence like perfect like we need you here we need you in the field (laughs) I love it so if people are listening to this and have already decided that they're going to try and come for my spot as your new biggest fan which they will, will never do but where could they find you on the social media to follow along with you in your academic journey well, the best thing is I have a website. So that's a great starting point. And um, the website is vanessaperotta.com. So I can spell that for you. So don't freak out. <laughs> so obviously the name Vanessa, V-A-N-E-S-S-A. Now for my last name, P-I-R-O-T-T-A.com. Now on there, vanessaperotta.com, you'll be able to find my TED Talk. You'll be able to find my links to my social media. So I'm on Twitter at Vanessa Perotta. Facebook and also LinkedIn, Dr. Vanessa Perotta. So you'll be able to find there. But if you just go to my website, it's got everything on there. So you can just follow straight away. Perfect. And, and, be- and don't be afraid to ask an email. And that's, yeah, if you've got a question, ask, ask me via email as well. She is the coolest, guys. Go check her out. That will all be linked in the description. And truly, like, watch her TED Talk because, like, it's amazing. It is so fun and so cool to learn things about whales. And, like, who knew you had to care about whale snot? Like I didn't until I watched that and I was a whale girl. So here we are. Thank you so much, Jill. And really a credit to you. This podcast is a great series and it's so wonderful to see so many women doing amazing things for the ocean. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Water Women podcast. I love sharing these stories with you and I love that you love to listen. Make sure if you like the podcast, you're leaving a review and liking and subscribing to the podcast. It really helps us out. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Water Women Podcast and on Twitter at Water Women Pod. You can also check out more from us, including quizzes, blog posts, and shop our site at waterwomenpodcast.ca. Thanks again for listening, and until next week, stay salty.